Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Tonight's sermon comes from the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation chapters 15 and 16. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up and follow along with me as I read these two chapters. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the, of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. 
People nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we read passages like we just read in your word tonight, and we tremble. We tremble at the thought of your great and awesome power. And we look to your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from that great day of wrath. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us tonight. I pray that you would speak through me, the the foulable man that I am, the sinner that I am. That you would speak through me to us, to everyone here tonight. That we would rightly hear your word and we would take it to heart. Lord, I pray that your word tonight would change who we are. That it would sanctify us and make us more like Christ. And I pray that it would change how we live that we would go forth from this place not the same people that we were, but with a renewed sense of hope and a renewed sense of purpose to call sinners to repentance, that all people may know you and worship you, for you are worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. Amen. Our passage this evening is primarily about one thing and one thing only. And that is the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God is not a popular subject in today's world. It's not even a popular subject amongst most Christians. But yet, here it is in God's Word. Why isn't it popular? Well, I think it's not popular to think about God's wrath because we like to think so much about God as love. 
We like to talk about his being rich in mercy and the good news of the gospel. But we don't like to think or talk about the wrath of God. Why is that exactly? Well, for starters, I don't think we have a proper understanding of it. In an essay for the Gospel Coalition, David Schrock defines wrath as God's holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose character and actions deserve eternal condemnation. Wrath is God's holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose character and actions deserve eternal condemnation. And so for the remainder of our time tonight, I want us to see why the wrath of God is actually good news and why we as Christians should not only talk more about it, but why we should long for it and not only long for it, but pray for it. And then I want to offer one challenge to us all by way of application. So instead of trying to go over and explain every detail of these two chapters, I simply want to point out from our passage three main reasons for why the wrath of God is actually good news. The first reason why the wrath of God is good news is because the wrath of God has the power to save. That's right, the wrath of God actually has the power to save. Maybe the first and most obvious way that this is true is that the wrath of God saves us in that it causes us to fear God and run into the saving arms of Jesus Christ. In this case, it's the wrath of God that humbles us and softens our hearts, causing us to flee to Christ for salvation. So it's Jesus Christ that actually does the saving, but without the wrath of God, people would never know why it's important to flee to Christ in the first place. And this leads us to the second way that the wrath of God saves us. When the wrath of God is applied to the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, the sins of God's elect are eternally paid for, and we are made new creatures in Christ's righteousness. In other words, when the wrath of God is poured out on the Son of God, our sins are forgiven and death loses its grip on us. At one point, the wrath of God was that great chasm which separated us from him. But now the wrath of God is that great chasm that eternally separates those who are united to Christ from the reprobate and all the spiritual forces of darkness who long to destroy the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what we see in verses 2 through 3, where the Apostle John describes seeing what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, both in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, the sea is a symbol for the place where the chaotic forces of evil dwell. For example, in Isaiah 27, 
it says, The Lord will slay Leviathan, the dragon that is in the sea. And then in Revelation 13, the Apostle John describes a beast who rises up out of the sea and who makes war on the saints. So this then explains why in chapter 21 of Revelation, John says there is no longer any sea in the new heavens and the new earth. What he means is that there will no longer be forces of evil at work in the new heavens and the new earth. But now back to verses 2 and 3, John describes this sea of glass as being mixed with fire. Now in the Bible, fire is typically a symbol of God's wrath and judgment. So when John says that he saw a sea of glass mixed with fire, what he means is that God has judged and poured out, poured out his wrath on the spiritual forces of darkness. John then sees all the people of God standing on the other side of this sea of glass mingled with fire, safe and sound from all harm, playing harps and singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. The fact that John makes reference here to both Moses and the Lamb means that John is intending to make a comparison between the way that God saved the Israelites from Pharaoh's army in the Exodus to the way that God saves the elect from the spiritual forces of darkness through the work of Christ on the cross. So just as the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea through which the Israelites had safely come thanks to Moses, so too are the spiritual forces of evil destroyed in the sea of God's wrath through which the saints had safely come thanks to Christ. In both, in both of these cases, the wrath of God destroys his enemies while simultaneously saving his redeemed people from them. Thus, the wrath of God destroys our enemies and in doing so delivers us from their wicked persecution. And this is what I mean when I say that the wrath of God has the power to save. It doesn't have the power to save us from our sins, but if we are in Christ, the wrath of God has the power to save us from our enemies. This is the first reason why we should be thankful for the wrath of God. It has the power to save us from our enemies. The second reason we should be thankful for the wrath of God is because the wrath of God is just. The wrath of God does not play favorites. The wrath of God does not take a bribe. We see this clearly in chapter 16, verse 2, where the first bowl of God's wrath is poured out on those who have the mark of the beast, causing them to break out in painful sores. God's justice here is evident in that the punishment of the wicked clearly fits their crime. These people had taken the idolatrous mark of the beast, and now they are being punished with their own mark from God, uh, their own penal mark from God. Now, before we go on, it's important to remember that the contents of John's vision, visions in Revelation are mostly symbolic. 
So we should not necessarily expect to wake up one day and see all unbelievers covered in painful sores. The well-known biblical scholar Gregory Beale hypothesizes that this painful boil symbolizes some sort of spiritual or psychological torment. If Beale is correct, then as we get closer to Christ's return, we can expect to see unbelievers become increasingly unstable, both emotionally and mentally. And this actually makes good sense when we consider that to sin against a good and holy God is the most irrational and insane thing that any of us can do. Another way we see God's justice in in this first bowl is that he only pours out his wrath on those who have taken the mark of the beast. God is not like so many of us who, in our fits of anger and rage, accidentally hurt the people we love, who actually don't deserve our, our hostility. Unlike us, God is not sloppy or, or careless in how he dispenses his wrath. And so the innocent will never be destroyed along with the guilty. However, this is not to say that the believers will cease to suffer as we wait for Christ's return. As the people of God, we can, and ex- we can and we should expect to suffer in this life. But we should never mistake our suffering as the product or the result of God's wrath. God does not pour out his wrath on his children. Everything we as believers suffer in this life is the product of living in a sin-fallen world that God uses to discipline us and to make us more like Christ. The good news for all of us is the good news for all of us who are in Christ is that our afflictions are never used for our destruction then. On the contrary, our afflictions are used for our good and for our sanctification so that we may share one day in Christ's glory. Next, in verses 4 through 6, we see God's justice in the third bowl as he pours out his wrath on the seas and the rivers, which then turn to blood. The angel who's in charge of pouring out this bowl then declares that God is, in fact, just because he's giving the wicked exactly what they deserve. The wicked, you see, have shed the blood of God's people, and therefore they deserve to drink blood. Now again, we must remember that this is symbolic language. It's another way of saying that the punishment of the wicked fits the crime. Now I myself, probably, probably like most of you, don't feel like I have been persecuted all that much by unbelievers. And so, and so therefore what we read here might seem like it shouldn't apply to the unbelievers we know, who seem, for the most part, like decent people. Maybe God's wrath seems harsh to us. But this is where we must remember that we are involved in a cosmic spiritual conflict that has been raging ever since the fall of man. 
Therefore, all our suffering, whether it is insults or cancer, all of it is in part due to Satan's evil influence over this present age. And all unbelievers, whether we're talking about Hitler or our next-door neighbor, insofar as they have rejected the grace of God in Jesus Christ, are under Satan's influence, which makes them worthy recipients of God's just wrath. Lastly, before I move on to the third and final point for why the wrath of God is good news, I want us to notice how these bowls of divine wrath compare to the trumpets and the seals that came before them in earlier passages in the book of Revelation. They're all similar in the sense that they all execute God's justice upon the earth. And in the case of the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, they both affect the same areas of the earth. For example, both the trumpets and the bowls affect the earth, the seas, the rivers, the sun, and the realm of darkness. But these bowls that we've read about in our passage tonight are different from the seals and the trumpets in that they pour out God's wrath on the entirety of creation whereas the seals had only affected one quarter of that creation, and the trumpets one-third of that creation. This tells us a couple of things. It tells us that God's wrath increasingly gets more and more severe as history goes on. God's wrath will increasingly get more severe as history goes on. It also tells us that God's wrath is comprehensive in the sense that nothing escapes it. And this is another reason why God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just because no one who deserves it will escape his final punishment. There is no one who can deceive God into thinking they're innocent. There is no one who can buy their innocence by bribing God. There is no one who can run or hide from God's wrath. On the contrary, everyone who does not bow their knee to Christ and receive him as Lord will have to endure the full weight of God's wrath. There is no escaping it. And this is good news because it means that there will come a day when justice will prevail once and for all. And this leads me to the third and final point for why the wrath of God is good news. The wrath of God is good news because the wrath of God is triumphant. The wrath of God is triumphant. God's wrath is victorious, which means that it's never at risk of failing or being defeated. Now, we need to preach this truth to ourselves on a daily basis because we see in the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth bulls that the wicked respond to the wrath of God not by repenting, but by cursing the name of God and even making war on him. 
Now it's tempting to look at the world around us and to see the nation's rage and to see our neighbors and the people and the politicians cursing the name of God and making a mockery of him and to think, where is God? But we know from this passage that God will have the last laugh. He will not be mocked. He will be victorious. And what's more, and the reason why we need to focus on that, the reason why we need to preach that truth to ourselves is because I believe that this passage tells us that there will be times when Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness are actually winning. It will look like they're winning. For example, we're told in verse 14 that Satan's evil influence in the world will be so great that he will succeed in recruiting all the rulers of the world to fight for him against the kingdom of God. And guess what? The church will be the main target of his attacks. Satan wants nothing more than to annihilate the people of God. And there will come a time when it looks like he just might succeed. And that's why verse 15 is such a comfort to us. Because in verse 15, God makes this parenthetical statement. And he says, the word, and he says that he ensures us of Christ's return. He ensures us that he is coming again. And then he exhorts us. He exhorts us to stay awake and to be vigilant as we await his arrival. See, things will only get darker, which is all the more reason why we need to preach about Christ's triumphant return to ourselves over and over again. We need to do that so that we will not grow complacent and, that we will, and so we will not grow weary under the onslaught of Satan's, Satan's attacks and the world's mockery. Instead, we must continue to fight the good fight of faith and hold fast to the word of truth. For as great and as powerful as Satan's spiritual forces of darkness may look, they are in fact no match for the wrath of God. Therefore, in our passage, when we see Satan gathering his forces to wage war, what he's actually doing is gathering his forces together for their own doom and destruction, which John clearly describes happening in verses 17 through 21. Here we read that the last angel pours out the seventh bowl into the air as a loud voice from the temple declares, it is done. Meaning that this last meaning that with this last bowl, the wrath of God is complete, and his victory over evil is finally won. The fact that this last bowl is poured into the air is fitting, since Satan is described elsewhere in Scripture as the prince of the power of the air. This means that God's wrath is a direct attack on the spiritual realm of darkness where Satan reigns. And when God's wrath is finished, there will be nothing left of Satan's kingdom. And we see that as we go on to read 
that God's wrath brings an earthquake so great that it splits the great city of Babylon, which is symbolic for the city of man, the city of wickedness, into three parts. John also tells us that this earthquake destroys all the cities of the nations, which implies that God's victory will be global in its scope. So great and so powerful is this earthquake that even islands flee and mountains vanish, which implies that there will be no place for the wicked to hide or to find shelter from the wrath of God. We're also told that this earthquake is accompanied by incredibly large hail, weighing as much as 100 pounds. The fact that people continue to curse the name of God, even as this hail falls on them, is not an indication that some of the wicked survive this great and terrible judgment, but only that they continue to curse God as they are perishing, which ought to impress upon us just how hard the hearts of the wicked actually are. When confronted with God's holy and awful justice, they, can, they still cannot bring themselves to repent but rather they continue to find blame with God even as they are being destroyed for their sin, which, of course, only justifies God's wrath all the more. Lastly, it is worth noting that many biblical scholars, and I myself, for what it's worth, uh, hear this voice from the temple and believe that this is the Son of God's voice, that this is Christ's voice that we hear being shouted from the temple, declaring, it is done. We have heard Christ utter this cry once before. When just before he took his last breath, as he was dying on the cross, he declared, it is finished. On the cross, it was Christ's victory over sin and death that was done. And now it's his victory over Satan and Satan's allies that is done. In other words, what had been inaugurated on the cross is now consummated with his triumphant victory over his enemies. So, in conclusion, we have seen that the wrath of God is good news for three main reasons. The wrath of God is good news because it has the power to save us from our enemies. Second, the wrath of God is good news because it is just. And third, the wrath of God is good news because it is triumphant. Which leads me back to my original question. Why are we so reluctant to talk about it? I'm asking myself this question just as much as I'm asking any of you. Why is it that we're not crying out with the saints from Revelation chapter 6 who are saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How come we don't pray that prayer? Well, I think we can find the answer in Romans chapter 12 where Paul writes to the church saying, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now the reason I think Paul felt the need to give these instructions was because he fully expected the church to be persecuted for sharing the gospel in word and in deed with those around them. And what's more is that he fully expected the culture to hate them for it, just like they hated him and just like they hated Christ before him. You see, I think we don't long and pray for the wrath of God like those saints in Revelation chapter 6 because we don't know what it's like to be persecuted. We don't know what it's like to be hated by the culture for sharing the gospel and for standing on the truth of God's word. And the reason we don't know what it's like to be hated and persecuted is because we're half-hearted. I can be a half-hearted I am a half-hearted Christian who likes to be liked by my neighbors. We are half-hearted Christians that like to be liked by our neighbors, by our teammates by other students, by your co-workers and employers. We don't want these people to think that we're strange or different. We were also taught that it's not nice to offend people, and so we don't say or do anything that might cause someone to become upset at us. But guess what? The gospel, by its very nature, is offensive which is why the Apostle Peter describes it as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's why Christ tells us that he did not come to bring peace but a sword, because he knew that the good news that he was sent to proclaim would be divisive, even turning children against parents and parents against children. Now, the point is that our task is boldly to proclaim the offensive truth of the gospel and to let the consequences be what they may. And yes, we should strive to live peaceably with all people, but not if peaceably with all people means not going out into the public square to share the good news about Jesus Christ. If hearing and thinking about the wrath of God moves you to feel pity and feel bad for the unbeliever, then good. I hope it does. I hope and pray that it moves my heart. The wrath of God should have that effect on all of us. It is sobering. But the solution is not to avoid talking about it. The most unloving thing that any of us can do for our unbelieving friends is to not share the gospel or to share it willy-nilly with a half heart. Being shy and timid and embarrassed, pretending like we don't really believe it. That is a truly unloving thing to do. Instead, the most compassionate thing any of us can do for our unbelieving neighbors is to boldly proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ to them. For if we do, we are assured in Scripture that the Word of God 
will not come back empty. The word of God never comes back empty. It will do exactly what God intends it to do. If he brings someone to saving faith, then we have gained a brother or sister in Christ. Praise the Lord! But if, the, if sharing the gospel has the opposite effect and offends and hardens the heart of our enemy, then we can rest assured that God's just and triumphant wrath will indeed deliver us. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, how terrifying it is to contemplate your just and holy wrath. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior who drank the full cup of that wrath for us that we might not have to experience, for, for, experience it for ourselves. What an amazing grace that my God would die for me. Oh Lord, would you please move our hearts, move our hearts to care more deeply about our unbelieving family, friends, and neighbors who do not know you. Lord, help us to be bold to proclaim the gospel. Help us, Lord, to get over ourselves in order to win someone to Jesus Christ that they may not have to suffer the judgment that will most assuredly come. Lord, motivate and enliven your church to be witnesses to the end of the earth for Jesus Christ. That all may come to worship you and to love you as their Lord and as their Savior. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.